to turn with me to uh, the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation 14. And while you are getting there, um, my assignment is to handle the topic of the church as an escape. The church as an escape. And it would seem as though I have made my task all the more difficult by my selection of this particular passage of scripture in the book of Revelation. But as you will hopefully see in just a moment, there is plenty in here that will be of benefit to us. And our interest in Revelation 14 is in the first five verses, the first five verses. So Revelation 14, verse 1 to 5. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's pray together, and then we'll get into um, our text. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your words are pure words, like silver purified in the furnace of the earth, purified seven times over. And so we pray that you would be pleased to use them to purify our hearts, that both sinner and saint alike might, found, might find everything that they need around your word. We ask for your special blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. I've heard it said, and I thought it was rather helpful, that the book of Revelation can best be understood as the movie version of Matthew 16 verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16 verse 18 in turn can best be understood as the consummation of the promise made in Genesis 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his heel and he shall crush your head and in, and in many ways the, the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures can be summarized in terms of that conflict. The serpent of Genesis 3 who as we will see in just a moment by the time we get to the book of Revelation has grown large into a dragon waging war against the seed of the woman and indeed striking his heel. But the seed of the woman in turn first decisively at Calvary crushing his head and then at his second coming bringing into full effect the, the full consequences of, of that death blow. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ building his church and the gates of hell failing to prevail against them. But when we come to the book of Revelation, we do not find so much the promised seed still building his church and the gates of hell still failing to prevail against it, we find that the building is complete. We find the gates of hell failing, already failed to prevail against it. 
because this is the message of revelation the past tense of matthew 16 verse 18 i have built my church and the gates of hell have failed to prevail against it and nowhere is this perhaps better illustrated this this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman uh, no way is this perhaps better illustrated than in the positioning of our text here in, in Revelation 14. In Revelation 12 and 13, we are introduced to what is quite clearly um, a false trinity. There, there is a false trinity in the book of Revelation. If you would go with me two chapters prior to this in Revelation chapter 12, we find a dragon. And what the dragon is, is the dragon is the devil counterfeiting God the Father. And there is evidence for that. For example, the dragon is the devil counterfeiting God the Father in the way in which the dragon brings forth the beast. Look at the way chapter 12 ends. Chapter 12 ends with these words in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The next thing we find in chapter 13 verse 1 is the beast rising out of the sea. Revelation 13 verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Now the question is, why does John tell us just before the beast rises from the sea that the dragon was standing at the shore of the sea? Well, the answer is he means for us to make a connection between the dragon on the sands of the sea and the beast rising from the sea. He means for us to understand that the dragon is responsible for producing the beast. And that should be familiar. Because in a similar way as the dragon brings forth the beast, so God the Father brings forth, begets God the Son. The dragon is the counterfeit of God the Father. But we also see it in the way in which the dragon gives authority to the beast. If you would go over to the next chapter in chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1, and I saw a beast, chapter 13, verse 4, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast in turn, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So he brings forth the beast, and then he gives authority to the beast, quite similar to the way in which God the Father begets God the Son. And then in his state of exhortation, after his ascension, grants to him all authority in heaven and on earth. So the beast is the devil counterfeiting God the Father. Uh, the dragon, uh, excuse me. The beast in turn is the devil counterfeiting God the Son. A couple of examples as well here. We see it in the first place in the way in which he counterfeits the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would look in verse 3 of Revelation 13, we find that one of its heads, one of the heads of the beasts uh, which has arisen from the sea, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. 
and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. A mortal wound is an injury which leads to death. But the surprising thing about this beast is that even though it has received a mortal wound, a wound that ordinarily should lead to death, it has not died. It has not died. It has, as it were, risen again from the dead. And the resurrection of this beast is a cause for marveling among the inhabitants of the earth. And it is for this reason that they begin to follow the beast. The parallel with the Lord Jesus Christ should be readily apparent. But we also notice that the beast is the counterfeit of God the Son in the way in which the beast has authority given to it from the dragon as we have already seen over the entirety of the world. Verse 7, Revelation 13 also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation if that particular way of phrasing things is familiar it is because we first encounter it you remember in revelation 5 when the lord jesus christ returns from redeeming his own at the cross and ascends into the heavens and takes the scroll out of the hands of the Father, what are the myriads upon myriads of angels saying? For he has ransomed men out of every tribe and people and language and nation. This is the beast, the devil counterfeiting God the Son. And lastly, the second beast, also known as the false prophet, is the devil counterfeiting God, the Holy Spirit. And you see this in the way in which the false prophet makes people worship the beast. Revelation 13, verse 11 and 12, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. This is the function of the second beast, the false prophet. It is to point people to the first beast so that people might begin to worship the first beast, which is precisely the function of the Holy Spirit in this age that we are in. What did Jesus say? That when my spirit comes, he will glorify me, he will exalt me, he will point to me, and through his operation in your heart, he will get you to begin to worship me. But we see it in one other thing. And we see it in the way in which the false prophet seeks to achieve its goal. The beast seeks to achieve its goal by performing signs and wonders. And that's in verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13, it performs, the false prophet, the second beast, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. And if that is familiar as well, it is because we know that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down and fills the believers, and they begin to preach the word. He backs up their claims through the performance of signs and wonders. The second beast is the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. So there's a, a false trinity here in, in Revelation. But what, what I want to draw your attention to is the way in which this second beast in particular goes about its work. 
its work is, is, is described as a work of deception in, in verse 14. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. It is a work of deception. It is, it is the false prophet attempting to convince people into thinking that the claims of the first beast are legitimate. That there is real salvation to be found in the first beast as the counterfeit of, of God the Son. And you will notice that people actually do fall for this. Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Now, we don't have time to get into what this mark is, but the underlying idea behind the mark is that it symbolizes ownership. In other words, these were individuals who were being marked out as belonging to the devil himself. And all of it was a result of them falling for the deception of the second beast. This is the situation that exists in Revelation 12 and 13. The devil counterfeiting God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit deceiving the nations so that he might have the nations for himself and quite clearly there are myriads upon myriads who have fallen for this deception and the question that arises is as all of this is going on where are the people of god have they fallen for the deception of the second beast what has happened to the people of god our text, which is the very next passage of scripture, answers this question. Where are the people of God? They are safe with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Verse 1, Revelation 14, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 now again if you're familiar with revelation we don't have the time to unpack all of this but you will know that 144,000 stands for all of the people of God both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament so then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him not some of the people of God but all of the people of God and guess what they do not have the mark of the beast they do not belong to the beast. They belong to somebody else. They belong to the lamb and they have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. In the midst of all of that, the people of God are safe with the lamb on Mount Zion. My interest in this session is, is in where they are, where they are. They, they are on Mount Zion. Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? What is Mount Zion? The first significant reference that we have to, to Zion in, in the Bible is way back in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 5, I believe. Um, we know how 1 Samuel ends. 1 Samuel ends with the death of 
Saul and his son Jonathan. Uh, David only hears of it in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and much to our surprise, which owes much to the evil in our own hearts. We find that David does not just mourn for Jonathan. David also mourns for, for Saul who has died. But life must go on. We know from the New Testament that the promised seed must still come through the line of David from the tribe of Judah. And so David is installed as king. And one of his first acts as king is to go into Jerusalem and to seek to attack um, the Jebusites. The, the Jebusites. And we find that account over here in, in chapter 5. Now the Jebusites had a region in Jerusalem which was called Zion. And Zion, we are told, was a fortress. It was a fortress. It was, it, was, it was considered to be impregnable. In fact, so impregnable was it considered to be that when the Jebusites learned that David was planning to attack Zion, planning to attack Jerusalem, they mocked him. They said, that is impossible. David cannot possibly come here and achieve in his objective of taking over the city that we are in because this is a fortress and this is impregnable. Nevertheless, we find these words in verse 7 of 2 Samuel chapter 5. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion in spite of the fact that it was a fortress. In spite of the fact that it was considered impregnable, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. And there quite clearly we learn that um, it, it began to also be known as, as the city of David and not just and not just Zion. So this is the first instance where we find Zion, Zion mentioned. And from this point onwards, we actually have at least 150 times in the rest of the Old Testament um, where, where Zion is, is made reference of. And, 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 that is, and that is surely significant. But what I want us to draw our attention to in particular is the way in which the meaning of Zion evolves throughout the Old Testament. It begins as an actual physical location here within Jerusalem. But as we move throughout the Old Testament, we find its meaning evolving. We find that it, it begins to mean not just that actual physical fortress within Jerusalem, but we find it being used to refer to the, the entire city of Jerusalem, as in Isaiah 40 verse 9. Then it moves from being, from being used to refer to the city of Jerusalem to being used to refer to the lands of Judah, as in Jeremiah 31 verse 12. And then the meaning of Zion is expanded even further not just a physical location within Jerusalem, not just Jerusalem, not just the lands of Judah, but according to Zechariah 9 verse 13, you don't have to turn there, you can read it at your own time, it's expanded even further to include the nation of Israel as, as a whole. But the most dominant feature of Zion that we have in the Old Testament, whether it is used to refer to the fortress within Jerusalem or Jerusalem itself or the lands of Judah or the nation of Israel as a whole, the most dominant feature of Zion and which is perhaps the key characteristic of Zion, what makes Zion Zion is the fact that it is associated with 
the presence of God. It is, it is the place that God has chosen for himself to dwell. And by and large, that is what we find in the Old Testament. Zion referring to the place where God dwells. The first signs of that, the first signs that it would take on such a meaning as the dwelling place of God um, is found right here in the account of David becoming king um, and taking over the fortress of Zion. One of the first things that he does after this in chapter 6 is to get the Ark of the Covenant which contained the law of God and bring it into Zion. After David dies and Solomon becomes king, Solomon builds the temple and he builds it in Zion. And already that is an indication to us that Zion was to become the center of worship, the place where God would, be, would dwell and where people would come and, and worship God. And that's the theme that dominates the, the entirety of, of the Old Testament. And, and I want to take you briefly to a very key passage of scripture where we can see this. And as we read it, I want you to notice the way in which God is described as dwelling in Zion and then things resulting from that. And what you will notice is you will find that as a result of God dwelling in Zion, there is safety to be found in Zion. There is safety to be found in Zion. So consider with me um, Psalm 48. Psalm 48. Psalm 48. Uh, verse 1, Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. That's the synonym for for Zion, his holy mountain, synonym for Zion, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So, God is in the citadels of Zion. God is in Mount Zion. God is on his holy mountain. And apparently, he isn't just dwelling in Zion. He is revealing himself in Zion. And notice the way that he reveals himself. He reveals himself as a fortress. A fortress. So God dwells in Zion. And God is a fortress. Because God is a fortress, Zion becomes a fortress. And you see that um, later on down in verse 12. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. A rampart is a kind of barrier, a kind of bulwark. Go through her citadels. A citadel is a fortress, a kind of castle, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. So, so because God himself has decided to dwell in Zion, and because God is a refuge, Zion becomes a refuge. There is safety to be found in Zion. There is a refuge to be found in, in Zion. And it is all because God himself dwells there. Listen to Psalm 20 verse 2. May the Lord send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Zion is described as the place of sanctuary 
Zion is the place where support comes from. Why? Because God himself dwells there and God is a sanctuary. Psalm 3 verse 4, I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy hill. Which holy hill? Mount Zion. Why? Because that is the place where God dwells and that is the place where he answers prayer from. So this was Mount, Mount Zion. But like much in, in the Old Testament, from the temple itself to the Ark of the Covenant to the sacrificial system, it, it did not take long for people to begin to wonder if, if, this, was, if this was really it or if Zion was pointing to something else. Take, for example, the, the sacrificial system. It's recorded for us in the book of Leviticus, the way in which the high priest on the Day of Atonement would get two goats, um, get a bull first and make atonement for his own sins. That was very important. But he would get two goats and um, he would get the first goat and place his hands on the head of the goat and confess all the sins of the people onto that goat and then drive the goat into the wilderness. And we're told that the people of Israel would be gathered watching the goat go into the wilderness and when they couldn't see it anymore there would be loud celebration in the camp of Israel because to them that meant that their sins had been taken away from them but he would get the second goat and this one he would slaughter and he would get its warm blood and go into the most holy place and and sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat now nobody was allowed in the most holy place except the high priest and that only once a year. It follows that as he, as he came into the most holy place and, and before he was to sprinkle the blood, he must have noticed blood stains already present from the previous year. When the previous high priest, if he was not high priest then, or if he had the fortune of being high priest in back-to-back -back years, came in and performed the same sacrifice, and I can't help but wonder if the thought crossed his mind, if this is actually working, if this is actually effective, why do we have to keep repeating it year after year if our sins are truly being atoned for? This must be pointing to something else, something more effective, something that will permanently take away our sin. So the ineffectiveness of the sacrifices it is what must have made them think that all of that was symbolic, pointing to something different. With regards to Zion, it wasn't so much the ineffectiveness of the support coming out of Zion, the, the deliverance coming out of Zion. It was the fact that Zion actually didn't last very long. It did not take long before it was invaded and its temple was burned to the ground and the ornaments within the temple were taken and, and used as, as cups and, and plates and forks and spoons to hold feasts, to hold parties. The once impregnable Zion, ransacked by foreign kings and the people of God taken into, into captivity, they must have wondered. They must have wondered, is this all there is? 
listen to the mocking that results. Uh, for example, in Lamentations 2 verse 15, um, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? Not so perfect now, is it? Either the Lord was wrong in calling it the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth, because it is far from beautiful and it is far from the joy of all the earth. It is in ruins. Or perhaps he was actually talking about something else. Another Zion, a heavenly Zion, one that could not be ransacked and brought to the ground and destroyed and whose people could not be taken into captivity. The earthly Zion was pointing to a heavenly Zion, a heavenly Zion. Let me show that to you in, in Psalm 87, and this will bring everything together as we go back to Revelation 14. But Psalm, Psalm 87, and you will notice that Psalm 87 is a, a most remarkable Psalm, a most remarkable Psalm. What I want us to notice in particular about, about Psalm um, 87, um, what I want us to notice um, is that the words of Psalm 87 immediately make us question the true nature of Zion as we have come to know it so far. Because what we find in Psalm 87 is the benefits of Zion, the, the support the refuge and the safety found in Zion no longer being limited to just the Jews but extending to the Gentiles as well. Read with me Psalm 87 verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken O city of God. And then he says this in verse 4. Among those who know me. Now, in order to know the Lord, he must reveal himself to you. And where we are coming, we know that the, the Lord revealed himself in Zion. And only in Zion. So in order to know about the Lord, you needed to go where the Lord is. And where the Lord has revealed himself, which is in Zion. But notice, notice this in verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention not Jews, but Gentiles, Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. Gentiles know me. How could that possibly be? And even more, not only do they know me, but apparently they were actually born in Zion. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. That's an instructive statement that the Most High himself will establish her, will establish Zion. In other words, this Zion that is being spoken of here is not the work of human hands. 
so that in order to get into Zion, you need to get into your car and drive to Zion. No. This is a city that God himself establishes. And because God himself establishes it, he sets the criteria for entrance into Zion. Entrance into Zion. And you'll notice that in verse 6, that entrance into Zion, membership in Zion, is not determined by natural birth. It is determined by God's own sovereign determination. So in verse 6, the Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Along with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Saul and David, there is also this one who has never even stepped foot in the land of Israel and in Jerusalem. But through God's gracious sovereignty has allowed for them to be a member of Zion. Clearly, this is not a physical kingdom. This is a spiritual kingdom. And we know what it is referring to. It is referring to the church, which is what we find in, in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, we find the writer to the Hebrews saying this in verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched when, when you came um, to trust in Christ, you did not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose, her, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22, but you have come when you trusted in Christ, when you received Christ, when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you came, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feast or gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, because he dwells in Zion. You have not just come to Zion, you have come to God himself in Zion and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, the blood of Abel. Now back to our text in Revelation 14 and we'll bring it all together. What I want us to notice about our text here in Revelation 14 is that God is there in Zion. And because God is there in Zion, it is a place of refuge and safety. And we appreciate this because of the context. Remember what we said at the beginning, that there is the false trinity of chapter 12 and chapter 13, and they are deceiving the nations, and people are beginning to worship the beast and its image. People, people belong to the devil, and in fact, he is actually beginning to persecute the church of God. And the question is, where are the people of God throughout all of this? Have they also followed the way of the nations? Have they also succumbed to the beast and to the worship of the beast? Have they abandoned allegiance to Yahweh and sworn allegiance to the enemy? No, the people of God are safe with the Lamb on Mount, on Mount Zion. It's a safety, it's a refuge for them. 
But there's something else that I want to draw your attention to. And it is something that reveals to us the nature of the safety that is found in Zion here in, in Revelation 14. The nature of the safety. Because this is not a physical Zion, but a spiritual Zion, it follows that the nature of this safety is, is a spiritual safety. It's a spiritual safety. And the clue is in the way in which the king on Zion, the Lord Jesus Christ, is, is described. Verse 1, Revelation 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name. Now, if this sounds familiar, it is because it is similar to what we find in Psalm 2, um, the Messianic Psalm. And in Psalm 2, God the Father says of the Lord Jesus Christ, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so when we come to our text, we should expect to find, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him a hundred... We should expect to find, sorry, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the king, and with him... 144,000 who had his name, but we don't. We find that the one who is standing is, is the Lamb. Why is that? Well, it is because the, the, the safety that they need, the 144,000, is not safety from invasion, the invasion of foreign nations and, and foreign kings. That's not their problem. Their problem is sin, and, and their problem is that they are at enmity with God. The problem is that they have transgressed God's law, and because they have transgressed God's law, they are subject to God's wrath and God's judgment. And so what they need is not help against invasion from foreign nations. That's the least of their problems if they're actually facing such problems. What they need is a lamb. To be slain on their behalf and that's exactly what God does he raises a lamb and upon this lamb is placed all of the sins of his people and it takes upon himself the fullest expression of God's wrath and satisfies it to the full and when they trust in this lamb they are safe with the lamb in Zion in Zion And this is where we've come to shelter, brethren. We, we have come to shelter on, on Mount Zion in his church with the Lamb. We, we've come to shelter initially at conversion, but we continually come to shelter here throughout the course of, of our lives because we look and we see, remember chapter 12 and 13, we see the devil pressing in persecuting the people of God, enticing the people of God. There is temptation on every side. There is the world threatening to take us um, into itself. And we must continue to come for safety and for shelter in Zion. Because when we come to the Lamb, and when we come and gather with His people in worship, especially on Sunday worship, we find support, we find refuge, we find strength. We find refreshment. All of that we find 
on Zion with the Lamb. And we thank God for that. We thank God for the opportunity to meet with the Lamb and his people because we need it. Boy, do we need it. But we must be careful at this point because Zion is not a place where you can just run in and out of whenever you need refreshment. You live in Babylon six days a week and then because things are getting tough, because you are feeling the pressure, you flee from Babylon into Mount Zion and you get refreshed and then you get back to Babylon and begin to live like a Babylonian. No, there is a code of conduct in Zion and those who seek to take refuge in Zion must be prepared to adopt the lifestyles of the citizens of Zion. There is a way of life that members of Zion must exhibit. There are things that distinguish individuals who have taken shelter in, in Zion. And in our text, the most significant distinguishing characteristic is that the people of Zion are worshippers. They are worshippers. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpies playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They are worshippers. They are worshippers. But you will notice that the worship that they render is not mere lip service, divorced from any form of practice on any other day of the week. The worship that they render is worship from the heart. And that manifests itself in holiness of life and a determination to follow hard after the Lamb that they have come to trust in. Verse 4, it is these the ones who have taken refuge in Zion. This is their distinguishing characteristics. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. We don't have time to unpack that, but the emphasis here is, is on purity. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. They don't just come to the Lamb on Zion for safety. They stay with him and they follow him and they fellowship with him and they seek to emulate him in everything that he does. They follow him wherever he goes. And this is the distinguishing mark of the people of Zion. Let me ask you a question, you who claims to be a Christian, you who claims to have come to Mount Zion to the church of God itself for safety and refuge in Christ from the wrath that is coming. Yes, I pray that you have found that refuge, that safety, and that you have been forgiven of your sins and that on the day of judgment you have no wrath to fear whatsoever. But if that is all Zion is to you, then you might actually never have ever truly come to it because there is a moral change that happens in individuals when they come to Zion. They become worshippers 
and it shows in their commitment to holiness and in their commitment to following hard after the Savior and in, the com in their commitment to be honest uh, in the things that come out of, out, of, out, of, out of their mouths. They don't live a certain way completely out of tune with what is expected of members of Zion and then come on the Sunday expecting the refreshments of Zion. No, they have learned that those who take refuge in Zion must adopt the lifestyle of Zion. I pray that more of us men might have this conviction about Zion. Because when we have this conviction about Zion, when we know that Zion is a safety, it's a refuge, the only safety, the only refuge that those in our families need to be saved from the coming wrath of God, we will seek to get them along so that they too may take refuge in Zion. And when we're in it with them, we will turn to them and we will say, my heart is, is, is overwhelmed. Um, I rejoice in the fact that you are in Zion and that you have taken refuge in Zion. But listen, this is not a place where you can come and go as you please. There is a code of conduct here. There is a lifestyle that citizens of Zion must exhibit. Let me explain it to you. And that we would not just explain it, but that we will model it for them to see it practically in us. So that when they see us, they would recognize that that person belongs to Zion. And this one, and that one, they were all born in her. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things that you have shown us in your word. We pray that we would love your church and that we would come to your church to find everything that we need to live in this sinful and this dark world. Because in your church, with the Lamb on Zion, and especially gathered with his people on the Lord's Day, there is real refreshment to be found. But that we would also remember that Zion is not a place to just go in and out. That there is a lifestyle that is expected of us. There is a code of conduct in Zion. And those who have come to Zion must realize that in coming to Zion, they are making a commitment to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And so help us to do this. And help us have a passion for those around us to get them with us so that they too might come to Zion. And then show them as well what is expected of them in Zion. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.